Steve. What's up, dude? A Healthy Dose is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by Steve Kraus, healthcare partner at Bessemer Venture Partners, and Trevor Price, CEO of Oxian Partners. Funny talks, but it don't sing and dance and it don't walk. The guys talk to leaders from various aspects of healthcare and cover personal stories, entrepreneurship, investing, and have a few laughs, many at each other's expense. Well, we both enjoy the art of the conversation. We both have faces that are made for radio. So the- At least eyebrows for me. <laughs> Double chin for me. <laughs> we get a lot of ones right, but we get a lot of ones wrong. One of the most interesting conversations I've had in a long time. If you pardon me, I'd like to say All right, so I love Raj Singh. I mean, he is a world-class entrepreneur and just a super great guy. I think it's going to shine through on this podcast. One of the founders of Concur, which literally started from nothing with his brother and a friend, built it to a public company, then almost on the precipice of in the early 2000s going bankrupt, then all the way to a multi-billion dollar, super successful tech company, one of the, one of the first SaaS companies out there, and now the CEO of Accolade. I, I know you know Raj well, Trevor, but he's just a, an absolute delight. I do, I do, and I have to say, Steve, I'm a big Tom Spann fan, and I've had the luxury of working with Accolade, and so I really, really believe in the culture and the organization that he built at Accolade. And so when Raj was hired into that role, I was skeptical, to be honest with you. And I got to tell you, like, he's done a great job. He's done a great job taking what Tom and Jack and the others built at Accolade and turning it into, you know, a company that's just operating at a different level. For those folks who are coming from tech, those entrepreneurs are coming from tech into healthcare. He just has a ton of great wisdom and sage advice about how to make the transition. I think you'll you'll hear that and you'll enjoy getting that wisdom from this podcast. So I uh, hope people enjoy it. All right. Talk a lot about tech and healthcare and this new wave of tech entrepreneurs coming into healthcare. But today we have a guy who's like crushed it in yeah, tech. Yeah, very few have done it at that level. <laughs> very few people actually have crushed it in tech. And then come into healthcare and are now running a pretty interesting scaled company. So, uh, Raj, nice to have you here. I appreciate you guys having me. Yeah. I think you have a really interesting background in that, obviously, you built Concur from nothing. From zero. Yeah. An $8 billion acquisition. It's an overnight success story, right? Like 22 20 years. years yeah. in the 22 making. 22 years, flash in the pan. And exactly that's interesting. Right. We'll, get, we'll get to that. I think, obviously, that speaks in and of itself. But you and your brother founded the company. So I want to actually start there, which is like... What'd you have for breakfast? Right, right. right. What can, what can <laughs> you was served in your we, household? Trevor and I both have Charlie's, so we just want to know what should we feed Charlie for young age? Charlie's. You know what's so funny is uh, my brother is seven years older than I am. You know, when your brother's seven years older than you, not to get into some sort of a deep analysis no, of do. my childhood, please but uh, he's gone by the time I was 10 years old. He was off, off to college. And so the founding of Concur, interestingly for me, was this opportunity to build a relationship with my brother. How old were you when you started Concur? 23. 23. Wow. wow. And were you doing entrepreneurial things as you were growing up? Were you, no, were there high school, man. signs of this in high school or college? I, you... I wish I could say I had like awesome stories of my entrepreneurial prowess. Concur was the first job, and it was a startup, but it was the first job that ever 
grabbed my passion and said like, oh, I want to do this. It was the first job that I thought people are actually working because they love to work, not because, you know, when I grew up in Michigan, people worked for the weekend. Like you were working until you got to Friday so you could go out and have a beer with your boys. All of a sudden I got to the West Coast, I got to Seattle, I got to San Francisco, and these people were working because they were inspired, like they wanted to change the world. And I, I'd never seen anything like it. It just changed my life, totally yeah. changed my life. So the concurred journey ended well, but it was, there was a lot in there. You know, actually I think I read three different business models. First was packaged software, then was a licensed software company, then was actually SaaS. Yep. Maybe credit with being one of the first SaaS companies, right? And then went public pretty early and then came like crashing down. So like, take us through the journey. <laughs> like, I think that journey is massively helpful to us at Accolade today, or certainly for me in my journey at Accolade. We started the company in 93, 94, and you guys are old enough to remember. The world changed a ton in 1998 as the idea of internet applications started to really take hold. And so for us, we had started a company to build expense reporting software. It started as a shrink wrap software company. We would sell boxes at an egghead or a CompUSA. I literally would, I, on more than one occasion, was demoing software in the halls of a CompUSA. Nice. Yeah. Uh, those were good days, man, like a Saturday afternoon demoing <laughs> software to some old guy trying to just brush by like, dude, I don't want any expense reporting software. Uh, we then transitioned to saying, okay, we have to sell this to corporations. We need to build something. And in 1996, what you would build as client server software. We built that, realized immediately, oh, this web thing is going to matter. And so rewrote it again. We wrote, rewrote the software three times in about six or seven years. I mean, that would kill companies. It almost killed us. We went public in 90. Eight, December of 98, the day we went public, Amazon went public, it was, you remember? That's it, a good day for Seattle. It was a good day. We had no business being a public company, but it was a time and a place where public companies- you Could access you know, cheap capital. You yeah. could access cheap, you could. Went public, realized that we were a bunch of kids who didn't really know how to run a company just yet. Missed a set of numbers. We missed a set of numbers just as everyone else started to miss their numbers because the market was starting to contract. When the market contract, we went from a stock price that had us valued at like a billion dollars to a stock price that had us valued at, you, you, I swear it, this is true, $28 million. Wow. And so we spent the better part of two years trading under a dollar. The Wall Street Journal, somewhere in the middle of this, about six months in, we're trading under a dollar. And we've had to lay off a bunch of people. It's, it was a miserable time. Published a story that said 99% of the companies that trade under a dollar never recover. And we posted it in the kitchen of our building at Concur and said, okay, we're either the 1% or we're the 99% we get to pick, let's decide. And luckily for us, the, you know, things started trending up after that. How long did it take to actually, like how many folks did you have to lay off at the downturn? At our peak before the crash, we were probably 600 people. We got all the way down to like 200 people. Oh, wow, that's painful. Brutal, brutal. And, but you know what? The best kind of brutal, Steve, the best kind of brutal. We were young guys trying to build a business and we made mistakes. Like ultimately, if you're running the company, they're your mistakes. You screwed it up. And when you have to lay off 400 people, those leave scars. Those scars are really good for you not to make those mistakes again. They can sometimes overly correct you and get you a little too cautious, but that's never been and probably won't be my problem. Letting go 400 people and saying, and having to look them in the eye and say, you know what? We expanded too fast, we screwed up, we pulled you out of a job that you 
you were somewhere else being happy. We gotta let you go now. You never forget that. Did you guys ever sit in the room at $28 million in a buck saying either one, we should go do something else or two, you know, was there ever a chance the thought, thought that the triumvirate wasn't the right team and bring in like the professional CEO, any of your investors sort of argue for yes, that? Yes, yes, absolutely. The investors certainly did. We got lucky, Steve, in many respects. Investors did, but the whole market was imploding. If you were an institutional fund wrestling with these types of issues, you had 20 companies. So you were, were like imploding. not the worst of the worst. You were, like, you were like the middle of the worst and so they didn't focus on you. I, I tell this story all the time. It's true, there was a period of time, you know, when we sold Concur in 2014, we had 40 analysts covering us. And probably in January of 2002, there were zero analysts covering us, <laughs> no one. And so we'd have these earnings calls, because you have to. Right. No one show up? Well, no, there was one person who would show up. Steve, myself, and our CFO would be on the earnings call, and my dad would show up. <laughs> it was like our first podcast, Trevor. <laughs> totally. <laughs> was he an investor, or was he was just checking in to see how you guys were doing? Uh, he, well, uh, he was an investor. But so not he was like, trying to extract shareholder like values. Not like a investor. But... He's, like, he's, like, he's like filing a proxy. Get rid of this team. <laughs> he would totally give us feedback after every one of those. Seriously? Like, that was literally one meeting where you're just you guys and your dad? Well, he was the only one who came to the public line. And like, we would like always the coach. Call yeah, the call, yeah. There was like that's, literally no that's one. Hilarious. And so there was no one else on the call except for my dad. And uh, we told him, like, you, he's this thick Indian accent. And we're like, Dad, we'll know it's you, even if you try to disguise yourself. That was the bottom of the bottom. What was the point in time where you realized you were going to actually emerge out of this and live to see another day? We knew we had to make the shift to SaaS. And you can imagine when you go through that kind of a bumpy road, Trevor, you go through this bumpy road and there's erosion of confidence. And so we knew for a fact that the only way to deploy software like ours that needed to touch every employee in the business was the web. But at the time you had, I mean, it wasn't just sort of some industry analysts talking about this. You had Larry Ellison, Bill right. Gates, everyone saying the cloud is never it's going bullshit. to be yeah. a real right. B2B business model, right. it just won't work. Right. And we thought, okay, well, here's some guys who have totally screwed up their company trading at a dollar. And there's Bill Gates and Larry Ellison saying, well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. We sat with our board and said, maybe they're right and you have every right to question us, but this is the bet that we can place. This is what we have to go do. And so either you gotta find a management team that's gonna do something else, or you gotta let us do this. Yeah, but it sounds so easy in retrospect, but you have to do a total architecture rebuild, and you have to basically rebuild your business model, meaning you're actually gonna take less cash up front. That's right. And by that's the way, right. analysts didn't even understand the SaaS business model and the beauty right. of it. And we had to stay profitable, right? We, we were not gonna get any free passes to say, hey, okay, we're so gonna you go. were profitable at that time. We'd gotten to break even. Okay, so that helps. And so, we were about, at the time, a $50 million licensed software company, Revs. By five years later, all of those licensed revenues would be gone and we'd be doing 150, $200 million in, in SaaS Revs. And that was the change. And you took over as CEO when? I never did. I was oh, the president did? of the company. Okay. Steve was the CEO the whole time. And you guys were able to keep your alignment and your relationship <laughs> mostly, through the whole thing? Mostly. mostly. Yeah. What are the pros and cons of working with your brother for 18 years? Pros are shorthand communication. I mean, I can, I can look at his face and know what he's thinking. And 
it's so, like with, that's like with me and Trevor. Yes, Steve and I are like Trevor. That. When I when, whenever I ask a financially oriented question, I Trevor basically like sleep. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I totally get that. Like you know your brother by the back of your hand. High high bandwidth connectivity, which means right. like what, what might take a four hour presentation to a group of other people, we could do in fifteen minutes. Is this a good idea or a bad idea, and should we keep going? The bad is, I think, this is true of any family relationship. You, I think you hold your family to a really high standard. When you, somebody in your family is full of it or faking it, you know. No, not everyone else in the room doesn't always know, but you know. And so you hold yourself to a very high standard. And that standard when, when you're starting to operate with a lot of other people's money, you know, when the, when the numbers are in the billions, uh, it can be exacting. I think, as you know, I did some work with Accolade before mm -hmm. you were there. And I remember reaching out, I think we were doing a chief people officer search for Accolade. Okay. And I remember reaching out to a woman who lived in Philadelphia. And we were running the search confidentially. And I described what the company was doing. And she stopped me and she goes, please tell me that this is Accolade. And I paused and I said, I, I can't disclose that. Right. But why do you ask? And she said, because my husband is an employee at Comcast. Our child was diagnosed with autism. And I credit everything that my child is doing with Accolade. Isn't that awesome? They saved my kid from, they put him in the right programs, they got him to see the right doctors. And that, when you took over Accolade, there were plenty of those stories. No doubt. This is a company that was deeply rooted in humility and in helping people. And yet, the knock on Accolade was that it didn't scale. Yeah. Right? And well, we've talked a lot, Steve and I have talked a lot about like service based businesses in healthcare can have amazing engagement and yet it's very hard to scale, whereas technology-driven businesses, the right. stuff that you did at Concur, outside of healthcare can scale. They don't tend to scale all that well in healthcare. That's true. And so when you stepped in there, how much were you stepping into, man, this business is really having an impact on people and I can bring what I know and make it into a long-term scalable and sustainable business? First, that accolade story, I heard those stories a lot. One of the first times I came in to meet the team, I sat around and listened to calls for a couple hours on the first day I was there. You can't engage with accolade and really understand this, the story without getting touched by the human part of the story. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. It is. It's incredible and it happens every single day. But the hypothesis you just talked about, Trevor, was exactly the hypothesis. And, you know, Tom Spann who is the founding CEO, gets a ton of credit for saying, look, there's a new thing that we have to do, which is we're serving 500,000 people today and we're doing it with incredible human effort. How do we extend this or scale this using technology? And how do we scale this on almost every vector of the business? How do we do it by uh, improving the number of interactions we have by creating new modalities to communicate with that consumer? But also, how do we scale every component of the rest of the business, our business development efforts, our sales and marketing efforts, et cetera? But it comes down to an interaction between an accolade health advocate 100%. or health assistant and yeah. an employee of a company that you're working with. That's right. And in the vast majority of call center businesses, the metrics are driven by get on the phone and get off the phone as quickly the, as possible. Which is the problem, yeah. And your business is the exact opposite, which is your health advocates are intended to stay on the phone and try to learn as much as possible, That's build right. a relationship, find other things that are happening that are at the root of the underlying health crisis. That's right. But that's really hard to do at scale, right? It is, Trevor, but you can use technology to solve that problem in different ways than maybe you did five years ago. So talk and to so, us about that, because that's, for Steve and I, 
the secret of guys like you coming into the industry. Yeah, and, and I think give me a couple more years and we'll see how we do. But we're <laughs> two and a half years into the journey, and I think we're making some decent progress. You've been there two and a half years now. Two and a half years. God, that flies. Wow. Jeez. See all the gray and you're my talking about hair. gray hair. Uh, I used to uh, be I used to be brunette. You really are. <laughs> <laughs> so think about if, if five years ago what we wanted to do was engage with every single person and dig deep and really have that deep conversation with every single human being that we interacted with because we wanted to build that deep relationship that would then allow us to influence decisions down the road. Well, we never want that not to be true, but we can be way smarter about the way we engage using technology. And so today, the way we do that is, you know, we're still consuming two, three years worth of previous history of that consumer before we ever take a single phone call or before we have one mobile interaction. We get formulary data, we get biometric information, and now we're feeding it through a, a machine learning engine that allows us to make recommendations before we ever interact with you. So when you call Trevor and we have you for the first time, we already have a set of recommendations for you. It doesn't mean they're right, it means we know that you're a very healthy guy who spent $200 on healthcare last year and you're calling in for a new ID card. Well, what we're gonna do is we're gonna identify that you don't have a primary care doc. We're gonna ask you a couple questions to help you understand what your preventative care benefits are and help guide you in that direction. We're gonna get you your new ID card. So that's the difference of Accolade today than where Accolade was before, but we still have health assistants who are engaging every single day with their people. They're still driving conversations to their nurse. We're just trying to do it in ways that are increasingly driving better engagement because Anything that you can do, this human interaction that can be powered by more insight that comes from technology, that can only be good. So you're not afraid of rebuilding tech? No. You did it at Concur three times. Yeah, three times, because you built the yeah. initial one then rebuilt it twice. You know, from what I hear, you're doing a lot at Accolade. Yeah. I question about what's the difference between rebuilding your own tech that you built yeah. versus rebuilding someone else's tech? It's actually a great question. No one's ever asked me that, Steve. When you rebuild your own stuff, you hate it because you hated it when you built it. And the reason is everything you build ever, you make these go-to-market trade-offs as you get to the end and you resent every go-to-market trade-off you have to make, but you have to make them. But if you love your product, you resent them and your product is never as beautiful as you thought it was going to be when you envisioned it because you get to the end and you're like, okay, well, we can't ship that. Pull it out, pull it out, pull it out. And you end up with like, that's not what I thought it was going to be, but it's what we have to do right now. It's like self-loathing a little bit. I think that's true for anybody who really loves products. And I love products, and so I've hated every product we've ever shipped. And so it's one thing when it's yours, because you've been waiting for the chance to rebuild it. You're like, man, give me a chance and a few extra bucks and a little bit more time, and we'll rip this thing apart and build it exactly the way we were supposed to. When you're rebuilding somebody else's stuff, you maybe don't walk in with that level of vigor and passion. And you're trying to, I think the difficulty for, at Accolade for us was just making sure we saw all the angles, you know? Today, we're three years in, and we've rewritten or rebuilt most of it and really extended it pretty materially. I feel a great sense of ownership of what we have, and, you know, we won't be scared to rewrite it again. We went quickly to Accolade, but let me go back to you leave Concur. Yeah. Concur is sold. You had, you know, a wonderful ride there. Now have a lot of resources, a lot of, I'm sure, inbound opportunities. I'm sure you thought about, do I just want to sit on a beach after, sure. you know, a hard 20-year run? What were you thinking about at that time? Was it clear that you were going to go into healthcare, or were you sort of debating other industries to go in? Sort of tell, walk us through that moment when you're kind of sure. deciding what's next. 
We were thinking about a startup, but what we were also certain of was we thought we'd learned a whole bunch of lessons. And so those lessons were not all technology lessons. They were the business lessons of getting beat up and building a business. And we wanted to apply that. So we didn't want to do something that was purely philanthropic, but we wanted to do something good. We wanted to do something that would have a positive impact on the human condition in some way, shape or form. And so healthcare was obvious. And we studied, I didn't end up at Accolade for 10 months after I left Concur. We studied by meeting with our venture capital friends. We studied by meeting with friends running healthcare companies. And we really dug in trying to figure out if a startup was the right answer. And candidly speaking, you know, guys, I think we would have built something because we were technologists, we'd have built something digital. And I think we would have probably ended up in the place that a lot of digital startups would have Oh, interesting. I mean, you're obviously a sophisticated business person and have been through the startup world come with a technology lens to the industry. So you weren't a healthcare guy. Yeah, that's right. Did you realize that at the time, was that immediately apparent to you that if you built something digital that it wasn't gonna work? Or is that only in retrospect, now that you've been the accolade seat for a while, that you were like, nope. wow, that would have been naive. Oh, I was lucky that some of my friends in the venture community said, look, no matter how brilliant your technology, it's a nightmare getting people to use your application. It's a nightmare. In healthcare? In healthcare. Healthcare investors, Steve, who you know, I think we got lucky in that we did our homework as the first digital wave of healthcare was starting to meet its first contract renewals. I think that first set of contract renewals didn't go well. And you had a bunch of venture capitalists who we were spending a bunch of time with saying, man, this is way, way harder than building a cool app. Well, the engagement curve is pretty standard for all of them, right? Yep. It's about mid thirties for the first three or four weeks. And, and then it's on a straight line <laughs> yeah. yep. uh, by week 12 down to sub 5% and engagement rates. These right? were brilliant it's, entrepreneurs building yeah, really good absolutely. software. And guys who were respected, like we knew the entrepreneurs and thought, wow, if they're struggling, this is going to be hard. We went to Accolade and we walked through the building and we thought, man, we never would have built this in a million years. We never would have thought of this. Like the idea that the entire healthcare industry was running away from the signal that says people are about to engage in healthcare and that the way to run towards the signal was to have longer phone calls and spend more time right. and dig it's, in deeper. Like, Silicon Valley people would be like, oh my God, that's like 20% gross margin business. You scratch your head and you think, I, I never would have thought of that. And that's the God's honest truth. We never would have thought of it. And so Mike tells the story all the time now inside our building, our mission is how do we extend this with technology, create scale without breaking the model? We think about that all day, but that's a way better problem than how do I figure out how to get people to the pond so they'll drink. We're starting to see that leverage and that leverage comes sometimes in extended value. If you would have asked us five years ago, we'd have said we're all about healthcare advocacy. Today we'd say we're a single point of entry for all things healthcare and benefits. If we can drive 70% engagement, we should drive engagement for everything else you do. You're clearly a smart guy, obviously, a very talented guy, but Trevor and I see this a lot, tech entrepreneurs who want to come into healthcare, <laughs> right? Especially tech entrepreneurs who've been successful, yeah. and n no offense, building you know, software for, and I love Concur, I use it at work, but building software for expense you know, and travel is not as necessarily right. rewarding, if you get it right, as building like an amazing healthcare company. Without I think doubt. that's fair. What would you share about your learnings with tech entrepreneurs who want to come into healthcare? First, Steve, is it's not about tech entrepreneurship, it's about entrepreneurship generally. And I think as technologists, and I say this counting myself amongst the group so I can, so I can disparage the group because I'm in it, we have a tendency in tech to land on a new island and say we've discovered it, even though there's people living there already, 
and then say, now that we've discovered it, we have to colonize it. We know what to do. We're here and we know what to do and we're going to make your life better. That in some industries, in almost every industry it's ever been tried, the first wave of entrepreneurs who come in to do this colonization fail. And they're expelled from the island, sent back on their boats and sent away. The next wave comes in a little bit humbler and a little bit smarter about the idea that we understand you already live here. We'd like to live here too and we think we have some skills. And I think that's happening now. I really do. I think you're seeing more prudent allocation of capital, less grand proclamations about the disruption of the entire industry. And so my advice to tech entrepreneurs, one, it's going to take longer because the industry is more fragmented. One, two, traditional rules of technology, entrepreneurship don't apply as it relates to data and the free interflow of data. That not everyone operates by the same principles in healthcare about whether data is accessible, who owns the data, and how we can share it in order to be good members of the ecosystem. And that means every relationship and every alliance and every conversation is a one-off conversation that yep. just takes more time. Yep. And you gotta walk in eyes wide open knowing that. Which leads to the third point, which is you have to be really smart about your preservation of capital and you have to be really smart about, about the promises you make to your customer. This is an industry that punishes severe, harsh punishment for overpromise and underdeliver, whereas the tech industry, in many respects, is inverted. Hmm. Overpromise, gain market share, and then deliver it on the road is, hmm. in some ways, yeah, right. a mantra of the tech industry. In the healthcare industry, that's not necessarily true. Now, having been, you know, a CEO of a healthcare company in the industry for two and a half years, you know, knowing. Amazon pretty well. Yeah. We're here 2018. I mean, 2028. Do you think they're a major player in healthcare? Yes. If you were running strategy for them, where would you point them first? Other than acquiring Accolade. <laughs> I wrote a blog post that I, I know that Jeff Bezos read the day I posted it. <laughs> and so he already has this advice. The interchange of data, the interchange of claims data, electronic medical record data, et cetera, in our industry is a massive impedance to innovation. The only industry where it's allowed that I can think of where there's a significant amount of resistance to innovation taking advantage of data sets that are typically or commonly shared. Amazon Web Services is the best provider of data platforms on the planet. There are none better. Their capacity to provide components like this and not just that data but others that have traditionally been behind walled gardens in healthcare purposefully would change the way healthcare works and would change the innovation curve. Companies like ours could innovate at pace across broader data sets and across broader marketplaces. I hope they focus there, and I think it's certainly a skill that they have. From your vantage point, Optum, Walmart, Amazon, Apple, Google. Yeah. In five years or in 10 years, who is the single most dominant player in healthcare? Apple, Amazon, Walmart, Google. Optum. 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 Wow, that's a great question. Five years from now? Did you, you say five? You Give me five. The time five, frame it's now. Optum. Five, Optum is a behemoth. Ten? Ten, I think you could start to see some impact from a company like Amazon. I don't understand Apple's strategy 100%. I think it's a very consumer-oriented strategy, and I think Amazon... What about Walmart? Uh, if Walmart buys Humana, you got to... I think Walmart and Amazon would be by two, ten years. Five years, Optum is a... I Optum's totally going agree nowhere. with you. I agree with you that Optum will remain dominant, but those two companies know how to do shit. Yes. Right? And 
Apple knows how to do shit, but in a different place. Google knows how to they sell They don't know how to do shit, dog. <laughs> Pretty good companies. But I, I, I do agree that Walmart and Amazon might be the two most interesting. I mean, I, uh, it's amazing to think what those Let two organizations score often. This is going to be my financial question, which Trevor rolls his eyes at. But you've been through packaged software, <laughs> licensed software, <laughs> right. SaaS. Yep. You've grown your company in the public markets. Like, you were in SaaS at the right time. Right. Early and then at the right time. You know, healthcare, IT, it's sort of, mm, from a public market investor perspective. There are a lot of $8 billion There are not a lot of concur stories. One of them just had an activist investor coming out. You know, what, what are we missing? There's gotta be friction or something that exists that was existing in your industry back when you were struggling at $28 million that went away. Like, what, what's your analysis? What makes this thing pop? We have to find ways at which customers, because the ecosystem is so complex, customers have a reticence to break up their supply chain into components. They're seeking one seller in many cases, and that seller is the carrier. And so there is a slew of innovation that's happening out in these hallways that has only a limited set of pipes that they can go reach the the end customer. That's not true in a lot of other industries. It's like back in the day when it was SAP and Oracle and GE and like- Bingo, and if, yeah. if you can imagine if you were concurring, the only way you could reach the CFO or the accounts payable person at a Fortune 500 company was go to SAP, Oracle, and PeopleSoft back PeopleSoft, then and say, yeah, yeah. hey, well, one of you guys take me into the customer. We would have been dead on arrival. I think, Steve, whether there's a bunch of IPOs or not, Investors have to look at healthcare tech stocks or healthcare stocks differently than they look at high tech companies. You just think it's a longer time. I think is it that takes what you're longer. It, I think it takes longer. The ramp is longer, and you just the number of zero to two hundred million in revs, twenty percent margin, seventy percent gross margin companies that exist in healthcare is yeah zero. And so well, there are a couple, but they turned out not to <laughs> right. right. They didn't turn out to be actually real. And so the. <laughs> This is a different gross margin profile, it's a different margin profile, and it's a different ramp. What we're banking on and what we're seeing, you know, we're lucky enough over the last two years, renew every one of our customer contracts. That was a bellwether moment for us in terms of the trend that we saw when we first got into the business was, you know, could we do that? Did we believe we could do that? Customers will buy value and we're just about to get to the end of the bullshit curve, I think, and there are companies out there now who are going to benchmark against other companies and see if real value is being delivered. And if you can sustainably do it, there's a scalable business to be built here. I think this business could be bigger than Concur, by the way. Patient that's, capital. Patient capital. More so than Let's hope. This was amazing. I feel yeah. like I got, like, we've been really lucky to have some amazing guests, but, you know, a lot of who are healthcare experts, and you're, you are now a healthcare expert, but, like, I feel like I got a masterclass in entrepreneurship. <laughs> that was great. very nice. Congratulations. I appreciate the time, guys. That was super fun. Thanks for listening to A Healthy Dose. Please subscribe through iTunes. And if you have any suggestions for topics or guests, email the guys at steve at bvp.com or trevor at oxyandpartners.com. We do okay.